please turn with me in the Word of God to Mark chapter 8. And I encourage you to follow along as I read uh, the first 26 verses. So again, that is Mark chapter 8, the first 26 verses. And please hear the Word of the Lord. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now what we have here in these 26 verses are four distinct, yet related scenes. And so, as I have read them for us this day, you've probably been struck by the fact that they, they are, they relate these verses uh, for uh, clearly distinct, different incidents. And yet there seem to be some recurring themes interwoven throughout all four. In other words, Uh, One incident is necessary for understanding another incident. Uh, One of these scenes is 
is necessary for comprehending what transpires or what the Lord Jesus says in another scene. So we, we could take one incident and just look at it fully, but the four, although distinct, need to be considered together to make sure we don't miss the intent of the passage as a whole. So we're going to work our way through each scene, each of the four, and as we go, I'm going to try to explain what's going on and identify, emphasize the main lessons, the main truths, the main principles. So we begin with the first, scene number one. I've called it satisfied hunger. And we read of it, again in Mark chapter 8, the first ten verses. Now when I first began reading, you might have thought to yourself, uh, we've heard this before. Yes, we have heard something similar before. Back in the sixth chapter, the Lord Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. So we have a crowd that likely exceeds 10,000 people. And Christ feeds them miraculously with what? Five loaves, two fish. Now we have a similar, it's different, it's not the same incident. It is a different incident where Christ miraculously feeds how many men? 4,000. Mark doesn't state it it explicitly. He says 4,000 people. Matthew tells us that in actual fact, it was 4,000 men, again, plus women and children. So we likely have another crowd that exceeds, is well in excess of 10,000 people. And here the Lord Jesus again multiplies bread and fish. Seven loaves and a few fish. Now as we read this incident, and as we enter into this scene, the question that is before us is this. What purpose does it serve? Why is this here? Why does Mark relate this miracle? Why does he relate this incident of Christ on this particular occasion feeding these 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves and two fish? The answer is twofold. Number one, this miracle is for the crowd's benefit. This miracle is for the crowd's, the multitude's benefit. I'm going to give you a phrase. Write it down if you can. Try to remember it if possible. What food is to the body? Christ is to the soul. We all know what it means to be hungry. We all know what it means to have hunger pains, hunger pangs, that gnawing deep within our bellies when it's been a while since we've eaten. And it is only food, and it is food alone that will satisfy that will quiet, right, satisfy that physical hunger. What food is to the body, Christ is to the soul. Because just like our physical bodies, our spiritual souls hunger. Our spiritual souls have certain longings, certain desires. These are longings, these are desires, these are hunger pains, spiritual hunger pains that exist by virtue of our separation from God. And as we look around at, at people, hey, maybe as we look at our own lives, uh, we, we see, we readily see, it's obvious, that, that people ha- experience these, these spiritual hunger pains. Uh, people, people experience this longing, this, this yearning for something to satisfy them. You look, for example, at how people follow the activities of actors and pop stars. It's rather sick when you think about it. 
You turn on the news, there are people starving all over this world, there are wars going on all over the place, and yet the attention given to the shenanigans of actors and pop stars, why is that? How do we explain it? You look, for example, at people, grown men this very day, who will paint their bodies in support of their favorite teams, grown men playing a child's game. How do we explain that? How do we account for it? The enthusiasm and the downright fanaticism. How do we explain? You look at them, people who attend concerts, lifting hands and closing eyes as they become one with the music. You look at people today trying to become one with nature and all of the silly ways in which they endeavor to become one with Mother Earth. You look, for example, at people who use substances to alter their present state of reality. How do we explain that? You look at people who pour themselves into the latest cause. People who have an inner, innate longing, yearning, desire for something bigger than themselves, and yet seeking to satisfy that spiritual longing, that spiritual hunger, in places that actually only compound the hunger. C.S. Lewis penned it decades ago. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me repeat that. If I find in myself a desire, a hunger, a longing, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable, the only explanation, is that I was made for another world. What food is to the body Christ alone is to the soul. Because it is Christ alone who mediates between God and man. It is Christ alone who brings us into fellowship with God. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And in that peace we find rest. In that peace we find meaning. In that rest, we find spiritual food for our spiritual souls in intimate fellowship and communion with the living God. And so this miracle is for the crowd's benefit. It's for our benefit. The Lord Jesus is teaching them, just as I can satisfy your physical hunger by multiplying seven loaves and a few fish to satisfy that hunger, even more importantly, far eclipsing that physical hunger, understand, and friend, understand this morning, We have a spiritual hunger. We have a spiritual need that can be satisfied by one alone, the true bread who has come down out of heaven. There's a second reason. Second reason why Christ performs this miracle. It's not only for the crowd's benefit. It is for the disciples' benefit. Ever since Christ called these twelve, he has been training them. He has been nurturing them. He has been cultivating them. He has been discipling them. He has been teaching them. No different in this incident. Yes, the incident has a purpose insofar as the multitude is concerned. But this incident, this miracle, also has a purpose insofar as the disciples are concerned. Now, to understand this, grasp the similarities between this miracle and the one of which we read in Mark chapter 6. 
So in Mark chapter 6, you have the feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children, five loaves, two fish. Here in Mark chapter 8, you have the feeding of 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves and two fish. There are three key similarities. The first is this. As we read both, we discover that in each instance, each case, each instance, Christ is moved with compassion. That is what leads to the miracle. That is what leads to the manifestation of his creational power and creational authority. He is moved with pity. He is moved with compassion. In each incident, in Mark 6 and Mark 8, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, we see secondly that as the Lord Jesus feeds these people, they are satisfied. They derive satisfaction, satisfaction of their physical hunger. And as we compare the two, we note a third similarity, that in both there are plenty of leftovers. In the first 12 basketfuls, that word in the Greek, basket, is actually a reference to something the size of a, a purse, something small. In this incident, seven baskets full. This is something much larger. This is something a laborer might carry with his, with his tools and everything else in it. But the point is, in both instances, there is plenty to go around, and Christ's provision superabounds. Having met their needs, having satisfied them, his provision superabounds. Have you got it? Three similarities. Now, there is one stark contrast. Do you know what it is? In Mark 6, the Lord Jesus is feeding whom? Jews. Here he is feeding whom? He's still in Decapolis, folks. He is feeding Gentiles. This is for the disciples' benefit. Why? Because they are a work in progress. And uh, the disciples, they need to be prepared for the future mission that's coming, the Great Commission. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. You see, at this point, the disciples, that's not the, that's not the framework, the worldview with which they're working. At this point, the disciples still think the nation of Israel is the be-all and end-all of God's program. They do not understand that Israel was never designed nor determined to be the end of God's saving purpose, nor, nor the end of the revelation of his glory. Israel was always designed and designated as a means to an end. And they need to be taught that. They need to understand that the Lord Jesus has not come exclusively for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, he has come to call his people from that fold, but he has come to call his people from another fold, from among the Gentiles. He has come to glorify and magnify himself in his church, his people given to him before the foundation of the world, in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile. They need to understand that. They're still a long way from understanding that. After his resurrection, just prior to his ascension, he's going to say, now, look, it's time to go. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to understand that I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no ethnic restriction to my program. There is no ethnic restriction to the proclamation of the gospel. That was never God's design. That was never God's intention. And here he is preparing them for it. Can you imagine the scandal in their mind? Can you imagine the perplexity? Uh, you know, even their question, even their question back in, in, in verse 5, in verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I'm not sure that lurking behind that question is any doubt that Christ can feed these people. I'm not convinced that lurking behind that question is some doubt in their mind that they've forgotten the former miracle that was already performed and Christ's feeding of that 5,000. I think what is lurking behind this question is this. We have seen you feed 5,000 men plus women and children, Jews. Now we have a bunch of hungry Gentiles on our hands. Uh, What are you going to do? Are you going to offer them the same? 
In this desolate place, are you going to perform a miracle for them? Are you going to do something similar to what you had done for the Jews? And here the Lord Jesus is training them that just insofar as the church is concerned, insofar as the display of the eternal glory of God is concerned in his eternal plan of redemption and salvation, there is no distinction. And he is bringing them along. You folk, you 12, you're going to have to be ready. You're going to have to be prepared. You're going to have to be trained because here's what's coming. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Satisfied hunger. We move now into the second scene. Total blindness. Verses 11 through 13. Look at what we read in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Nothing new there. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And so if we, just, if we just read those first few words, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, uh, we might be thinking to ourselves, well, well that, that's nice. Uh, that's a good thing. Now, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're doubting. They're not so sure what they should make of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees, they're, they're sincere seekers. And they're just being honest. They're rational thinkers. And, and so they just come in humility to the Lord Jesus. And they just present their case before him. Yes, there's a little bit of an argumentation. We're still not clear on who you are. But look, you know, if you would just do one sign for us, if you would just perform some spectacular sign in the heavens, we would believe you. That's not what's going on here. Look at the next phrase. They seek from him a sign from heaven to test him. They are not looking for a sign which will stir in them belief, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have already rejected Christ. They have already rejected his signs. Here they are declaring what? They are making it plain that, look, you haven't done anything that merits our faith. Now you think back, this is, this is, this is quite something, and perhaps this context will help us. You think back to that man, Nicodemus early on in Christ's ministry. And Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus by night, right? Nicodemus was what? He was a Pharisee. And Nicodemus says the following to the Lord Jesus. We know, so he's speaking on behalf of his Pharisees, his colleagues. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So what is he openly acknowledging? We know. We acknowledge these signs. And we know what these signs mean. And now the Pharisees, the same men, come to Christ, arguing with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The signs were not the issue. The issue was this. The Pharisees had predetermined ideological idols to which they were committed and which blinded them to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Voltaire, French atheist skeptic, centuries ago uttered these words. Even if a miracle should be performed in the open marketplace before a thousand witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. As Voltaire, that's these men, the Pharisees. They're not looking for a sign. 
They are not interested in a sign. They've already seen all of Christ's signs, and they know perfectly well what these signs reveal. They know it. They accept it. They reject it. Why? Because of their presuppositions. They are already committed to idolatrous ideologies, which blind them morally to the person, the work, and the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, be, pay careful attention here. In this text, we don't, don't, don't only have the Pharisees. A little later, the Lord Jesus warns the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, the Herodians. So there are two groups of people. We have the Pharisees and we have the Herodians. We don't only have the Pharisees and the Herodians. You go to the parallel account of Matthew chapter 15, and there's actually a third group present. It's a big party. They're all there. The Sadducees. And so we have the Pharisees over here. We have the Sadducees right here, and we have the Herodians. They're all coming at the Lord Jesus. They're all demanding a sign. And in these three, we have represented three ideologies, three idolatrous commitments that blind these three groups of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss. Those three are representative of the nation of Israel as a whole, and those three are representative of mankind, humanity as a whole. You take the Pharisees, you take the Sadducees, you take the Herodians. These are three, three groups that arose in, in first, second century before Christ out of the Hellenization of the nation of Israel. And these three represent three competing ideologies. They despise one another, and yet they unite in their, in, in their animosity and enmity toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And these three ideologies are still alive and well And these three ideologies are still, when we put them all together, the position and the condition of mankind, whereby mankind, because of its commitment to these ideologies, is blinded to the identity of Christ. So let me give you the first. It's Pharisaical legalism. Pharisaical legalism. The Pharisees are committed to the idol of self-righteousness. They are committed to the idol of self-righteousness. That is why they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that pre-commitment, that pre-supposition, whereby they worship their own righteousness, they trust in their own righteousness, that they are blinded to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, they are the determining factor in salvation. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, There is something in them that sets them apart. There is something that they do in their rituals, in their ceremonies, in their traditions, which earns favor with God. There is something in the way they think, the way they act, the way they live, that accounts for God's favor toward them. It is pharisaical legalism. And it is their blindness to their own sin. It is their blindness, their unwillingness to accept and to acknowledge and embrace the depth of their depravity. It is the rejection of Christ's teaching itself, that the heart is the origin of all evil, that the heart is depraved in the sight of God. The Pharisees will not accept it. Why? Because they have elevated their own righteousness as an idol, and therefore they are blinded to the identity of Christ, and they reject him. You know anybody like that today? You know, millions of people like that today. The idol of self-righteousness. Why? 
because they underestimate the seriousness and the heinousness of their sin. You know, we've got, uh, we've got Fossil Rim down the road there, don't we? A couple people here employed at Fossil Rim. I enjoy going through Fossil Rim. You, you, you pull in and you wind down the, uh, the windows, open maybe the, the sunroof if you've got one, and you start feeding the giraffes and impala, springbok, kudu, or maybe something really exotic like a white-tailed deer that's jumped over the fence. But uh, you start feeding these animals. And then you come to the cheetahs. And the cheetahs are what? Caged. There's a reason why the cheetahs are caged. None of us is calling out here, kitty, kitty, looking to feed a cheetah. You come to the rhinos, and the rhinos are what? They are fenced. There's a reason why the rhinos are fenced. What's the point? These animals are dangerous. These animals are not to be tampered with. These animals are destructive. These animals are, cheetahs anyway, predators. See, far too often... Men, women, individuals, they have this notion of their sin whereby they do not take it seriously. They do not see themselves as God sees them. They do not understand the condition and utter darkness of their heart. Therefore, they do not understand that there is nothing they can do that is good or meritorious in God's sight. And they do not understand the heinousness nor the danger of their sin. They are committed to what? The idol of self-righteousness, pharisaical legalism. But we move on. We have the Sadducees. Sadducean. I made these words up. I'm not even sure how to say that. Sadducean liberalism. Sadducean liberalism. Who are the Sadducees? They, are, they believe in God, ill-defined, but they reject most of the Hebrew scriptures, they only accept the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And even those five books, they uh, reject anything miraculous that is recorded in those books. They reject the miraculous. They reject the supernatural. They reject that there is a Holy Spirit. They reject that there are angels and demons. They reject that there is a future uh, resurrection. Uh, they are materialists. And so they have eviscerated the religion of what? God. All that is supernatural. They are liberal theologians. And this is their idol. This is their ideology. They worship, see the Pharisees, they worship, they're committed to what? The idol of self-righteousness. The Sadducees are committed to the idol of self-autonomy. Whereby they deny the realm of the spiritual. They deny the realm of God. We see precisely the same thing today. Al Mohler has written liberal theology. Attempts to remove God from the equation. Having established a truce with the natural world, liberal theology denies God's active and sovereign rule. In other words, God's goodness is affirmed while his greatness is denied. That is, that is a bang-on description of liberal theology and how it is practiced in our own day. God's goodness is affirmed. Well, yeah, God is good, God is good. But his greatness is Denied. What is the result? Within liberal theology, God becomes an idea which changes with history. Within liberal theology, Christ becomes a mere man whose sensitivity is to be emulated. Within liberal theology, conversion becomes a change from neglecting others to helping others. Within liberal theology, the Christian becomes someone who has entered into Christ's redemptive mission to transform society. But God himself is removed. 
Why? Because there is a a priori commitment to what? The idol of self-autonomy. And then we move on. We've got a third group, Herodian secularism. So Pharisaical legalism, pre-commitment to the idol of self-righteousness. Sadducean liberalism, a pre-commitment to the idol of self-autonomy. And Herodian secularism, a pre-commitment to the idol of self-exaltation. They just completely remove God from the equation entirely, dismiss him. We see in the history of Western civilization this occurring really at the time of the Enlightenment, the dawning of the Enlightenment in the 1700s, where man and philosophers and even those within the realm of religion began to explain the origin of the earth and the meaning of life apart from God. God was no longer necessary. God was no longer necessary to explain the origin of of, of, of man, the origin of creation, and the physical realm. And God is no longer necessary to explain the meaning of life. When that was coupled with Darwinism in the 1800s, the result was secularism, and the result is our society, society in which we live today, which by and large most people, although they may espouse Christian ideals and Christian vernacular and Christian words, in actual fact they have a secular mindset and a secular worldview, whereby we, we worship what? Self. Where we were pre-committed to the idol of self-exaltation. Because of our commitment to secularism, we've fallen as a society, and we see this in the discussions that occur around us. We've fallen into all sorts of logical and rational absurdity as people try to explain the meaning of life apart from God, as people try to explain the origin of the universe apart from God. And so for some, the universe is an illusion. It's akin to a dream. You had a dream last night, and uh, while you experienced that dream, you thought it was real, didn't you? And then you woke up only to discover... It was a dream. So for some today, because they're committed to secularism, that's how they view life. This is only a dream. It's only a dream. It's not real. It's the Matrix. Remember those movies years ago? It's the Matrix, from which we will someday awaken. And then we will enter into reality, and the passageway to that reality is death. That's a prevalent mindset today. For others, they explain the universe how. They believe it's self-existent. And so we hold hands and we sing along with Elton John, the circle of life. And we fall into this silly notion of reincarnation. We dare not use the word, but how many today actually believe in something as logically and irrationally absurd as that? Reincarnation. Or there are others within our society, our culture, who believe the universe is self-created. That something has actually come from nothing. Again, a logical, rational absurdity. And yet that is all you are left with. When you separate God and remove God from the origin of the universe... You remove God from the meaning of life. When you are committed to the idol of self-exaltation, you will begin to revel in the irrational. That's the only way you can go. Not only do we revel in the irrational, this is our society, this is the way people think, reveling in the irrational. Not only that, but that, 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 that thinking and that mindset and that view, it produces what? For any thinking person, it produces the most desperate, deep despair and despondency. If God is removed from the equation, if there is no God and and we don't need God to explain the origin of the universe, if we don't need God to explain the meaning of, of life and all I am left with is the idol of self, all I am left with is the idol of self exaltation, what will that look like? Here's what it will look like, friends. America leads the world in the number of teenage suicides. We can lay that at the feet of secularism. America leads the world in the consumption of drugs, legal and illegal, 
We can lay that at the feet of secularism. America leads the world in addictions of various kinds. Lay it all at the feet of secularism. America leads the world in divorce. America leads the world in the incidence of depressive illness. Fastest growing industry in America today is therapy. What does that mean, folks? Think, be rational, think it through. It means our society has bought into an idol, the idol of self-exaltation, Herodian secularism, and the results are wreaking havoc on individuals. Firstly, whereby they revel in the irrational. And secondly, whereby they end up in the realm of despair and despondency, which is seen everywhere we look. James Montgomery Boyce writes, We have been told that the past is meaningless. Everything is focused on the present. We're told that we only go around once. And so we should forget about the past and not worry about the future. It sounds like good philosophy, but the loneliness and anxiety of a philosophy like that is almost intolerable. That's where we're at. See, nothing's new under the sun. That's where people were at in Christ's day. You had these three groups, representative of the nation, representative of humanity, coming at him, and they are blind. Give us a sign. They don't want a sign. They are pre-committed, predisposed to what? Their idols. What are their idols? Again, the idol of self-righteousness. That's the Pharisees. The idol of self-autonomy, that's the Sadducees. The idol of self-exaltation, that's the Herodians. They are not after a sign. They are not the least bit interested in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? They suffer from total blindness, darkness. Why? Because they are predisposed to what? Idols firmly rooted and entrenched in the soul. So what's Christ's response to them? Verse 12, this is telling. He sighed deeply. He sighed deeply in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? He knows why. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Lots of people seeking signs today, right? Signs and wonders. Yeehaw, hallelujah. Lots of that going on. Friend, you're not a believer. You want a sign? This book right here is a sign. Over two million words. How many different authors? 40? 67 different books? Written in two and a half languages? Over a period of 1,500 years? And yet all pointing to and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only sign you need. Are you too blind to recognize it? The wonder of this book, the wonder of the revelation of God, the wonder of the scriptures that point to and reveal a glorious God, man's alienation from that God, and affirming there is but one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Move on to a third scene, partial blindness, partial blindness. The disciples, not to be confused with total blindness, that of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, but now a partial blindness, the disciples, verses 14 through 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned, that is Christ, cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees 
and the leaven of Herod. Matthew adds the Sadducees. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Herodians, the leaven of the Sadducees. Leaven sours, swells, and spreads, says Matthew Henry. It poisons. It corrupts. Disciples, you beware of that leaven. You beware of those three groups, and you beware of those three ideologies, and you beware of those three idolatrous preconceptions, predispositions, which is prevalent in man as represented in those three groups. Beware! Beware! And what's their response? Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. How did they get from there to there? Well, how do I get from some places to other places? How do they get from Christ's warning concerning the leaven of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians to now discussing among themselves the fact that they're hungry and they have no bread? The thought process there defies explanation. I can just picture Peter looking over at James. Why didn't, why didn't you bring one of those basketfuls that was left, the leftovers? There were seven of them. James responds, Peter, why don't you jump overboard and do us all a favor? They begin arguing among themselves, and they're discussing, we have no bread. He's rebuking us now for having forgotten to bring bread. They are interpreting Christ's warning through what? Their own felt needs. And they've lost sight of his point and what it is he's trying to convey to them and teach them. And so he rebukes them for three things, quickly. He rebukes them in verse 17 for a hardened heart. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? In the context of the disciples, in the context of Christians, believers, a hardened heart is what? It is a heart in which faith is squashed. It is a heart in which faith is pushed out. It is pushed out because we've taken our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples, they have heard Christ's warning through the grid of their own preoccupations. How many of us do that? How many of us hear the word of God? How many of us read scripture through the grid of our own preoccupations? And because we're so self-preoccupied, we lose sight of what Christ is saying. We lose sight of what Christ declares. We lose sight of what Christ commands. We lose sight of what Christ promises. That's where these disciples are. Faith is being pushed aside because they're focused on self, their own felt needs, their own preoccupations. And so he challenges them, are your hearts hardened? But it rebukes them for a second reason. Verse 18, a forgetful memory. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. And do you not remember? He takes them back to the incident recorded in Mark 6, the feeding of 5,000. How many baskets did we collect? They know, 12. What's just happened a brief time ago? The feeding of 4,000 plus women and children. How many baskets did we collect? Seven. Do you not remember? They have forgotten God's providential dealings. And it rebukes them for a third reason. A clouded understanding. Right at the end of verse 21. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? You have a hardened heart. You're hearing me through the grid of your preoccupations. You have a forgetful memory. You have already forgotten my providential dealings with you and the wonderful manifestation of my creational power and my creational authority. Here's what it means. 
you do not yet understand, they haven't fully grasped in whose presence they stand. They're on the way there. They're nowhere near the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herodians. They are works in progress, but they still suffer from what? Partial blindness. Christ is still removing what? The scales from their eyes. He's still opening their eyes slowly, opening their ears slowly that they might see and they might hear. And next week, next week we'll see that this, this begins to come to a culmination. Because following this incident, the Lord Jesus asks them point blank, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're one of the prophets, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Who do you say that I am? And Peter stands forth, and what does he declare? You are the Christ, the Son of God. They are works in progress, still suffering from, still struggling with partial blindness. Now, it brings us to the fourth scene, restored sight. They arrive at Bethsaida, close to the Sea of Galilee. Some people bring, verse 22, a man to the Lord Jesus, who is blind. They beg him to touch him. What do we read in verse 23? And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he, that's the man, looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now the Lord Jesus has already healed plenty of blind people. We've already read that. Now, the Lord Jesus on numerous occasions has, has been confronted, has faced someone who was blind, and he has healed them. And yet what is peculiar to this incident is what? It's different. There's something deliberate here. The Lord Jesus does something different. The healing is progressive. And so there is this first stage in which he brings the man to what? A partial opening of his eyes. When everything is still fuzzy, things are unclear. I see men, but they're like, they're like trees walking. And then there is this second stage when he heals him fully, and now he sees clearly. Understand, yes, in the first instance, the miracle is for the benefit of this man. In the second instance, the miracle is for the benefit of whom? The disciples. He is teaching the disciples. He is showing the disciples precisely where they are at. He has just accused them of those three things, a hardened heart, a forgetful memory, and a clouded understanding. And now he shows them by way of a tangible demonstration, look, my twelve, this is what you are like. You are like this man now walking around who can see men, but they look as though they, look as though they are trees walking. That's where you're at. You've still got a long way to go, whereby the Lord Jesus Christ is going to remove their scales so that they see him fully, they know him fully, and they appreciate who he is fully. Here's a good question for you, friend. How's your eyesight? I don't mean those eyes God has given you. I mean, how is your spiritual eyesight? Do you see the Lord Jesus Christ in his fullness? Do you see him as your redeemer who delivers you from sin? Do you see him as your mediator who reconciles you to God? Do you see him as your father who cares for you? Do you see him as your priest who intercedes for you? Do you see him as your shepherd who leads and protects you? Do you see him as your prophet who instructs and illuminates you? 
Do you see him as your advocate who pleads for you? Do you see him as your friend who loves you with fervent affection? Do you see him as your king who rules over you? Do you see him as your surety who guarantees your inheritance? We sang it earlier, and I can't think of a better way than to conclude the words of that beautiful chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray this day that you would grant us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. We pray that you would indeed open the eyes of our hearts. We pray for unbelievers in our midst gathered here who have sat under the proclamation of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would point them heavenward, convicting them of sin and convincing them that their only hope resides in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work. And for your children here this day, believers, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, enlarge our sight, help us to see the Lord Jesus for who he is fully. And may we look upon him daily. And may we find our satisfaction in him. May we find our rest in him, our peace and our joy in him. We do pray, our Father, that he might be our all in all. In his precious name we ask it. Amen.